Welcome to Podcast with Lara Axtell, a seasoned educator of 26 years. Podcast is brought to you by Reading Horizons, the creator of a data-driven literacy program for beginning readers, struggling readers, and English language learners of all ages. Visit readinghorizons.com to learn more. And now, Podcast with your host, Lara Axtell. Today's episode continues the conversation about adolescent literacy that began on our last episode with Dr. Jeffrey Wilhelm. Part two features Dr. Michael Smith, who with Dr. Wilhelm has authored a number of important books about this topic. The findings of their research, particularly regarding the literacy lives of adolescent boys, and their experience as educators with teens is fascinating and so relevant to secondary educators. We are also joined on this episode by Christopher Butts, an educator who works with high school students in an alternative setting. His effort to improve engagement with his students and to put these practices in place in the classroom is worth listening to. Thanks for joining us today as we welcome Dr. Michael W. Smith, a professor in the College of Education at Temple University, a researcher, and author of numerous books and articles about adolescent literacy. Dr. Smith, welcome to PodClast. We appreciate you sharing your expertise. My pleasure. So you taught high school English for 11 years. What do you know now that you wish you had known then when you were teaching adolescents? A couple of things, I think, actually. One is, I think when I started teaching, I was more optimistic about students' ability to apply what they learned in one context to another context. So I, I think as I've spent more time working in the area and thinking about things, I understand that what I was taking for granted doesn't really occur unless teachers make particular efforts to make it occur, and that issue of, of, of transfer from one context to the next. So I think that that's one, one thing. The other thing that's been really growing on me is how important extended and multiple opportunities for practice is. I think I was too quick at assuming that, well, I taught them they should understand it, they should know how to do it, than I am now. And do you think that's a common assumption among um, teachers of secondary? I think it. I think it is, and it's it's understandable because there's a, people feel a pressure to cover a lot of material, and so in order to do that, you need, you want to go quickly. So I, I do think that it is a common assumption. So I guess I would say that I've come to try to work on more focused goals, spend give students more time practicing or regular practice in those applying the stuff that we're that we're that we're working on. And also, I guess the other thing I'm thinking about ways to put what they're learning in context of immediate use for them, that is try to create a context that invites and rewards the application of the the knowledge, skills, and strategies that we're working on in the here and now, which gives them a reason to then apply it later at, you know, at some point in their future career, either inside or outside of school. Mm. You've done research and written a number of books and articles. Um, We've mentioned previously Reading Don't Fix No Chevys and Going With the Flow. What has been the biggest aha moment for you relating to adolescent literacy? One of the things that comes through in in Chevys, uh, I I guess I'll say two things. One is the extent to which students have a deep an abiding belief in the power of literacy, even though they might not think about it the same way that schools do. Uh, so that came through in Chevy's. It also came through in the book Jeff and I wrote called um, Reading Unbound, which is a study of the nature and variety of pleasure students take in reading what 
you might call unsanctioned genres, um, fantasy, graphic works, those kinds of things. So one of the things that is somewhat uh, surprising is you, you think, well, you know, these kids, kids these days, they don't care about reading the way that they used to. Now they care deeply about reading, but I think they have expanded understanding about expanded understandings of what counts as as reading and writing. So you know they're very deeply engaged in literate activity. I, I, I'm, I think that one of the things that I've learned through doing the research is that that there's a deeper and easier connection, maybe easier may maybe may the wrong word. Um, there's a, a deeper and accessible connection between what kids do outside of school and what we want them to do inside of school. And this may um, kind of connect to that. In an article that you wrote entitled What We Know About Adolescents' Out-of-School Literacies, What We Need to Learn, and Why Studying That is Important, you mentioned that you've come to regard new literacies as important ends in themselves and not just as bridges to more conventionally academic literacies. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, this is actually something that that my students have been urging <laughs> urging me to think about. So. I, I had always thought, well, you know, let's think about using a blog or let's think about using online reading as a way to get kids to, to do sort of a conventional school-sanctioned kind of reading. So I had always thought about making bridges between students' out-of-school literacies and their in-school literacies with the idea that, you know, we, if we can just take advantage of them, then students are you know, will be more willing and, and able to attain the sort of academic literacies that I was trying to teach them. And in doing that, I sort of set up a hierarchy that is reading, being able to write uh, an argument, an academic argument that you would sort of, that you would do in school, that you would do in college is more important than being able, than writing an effective response to a blog post, to, to a, in a blog or something like that, or that, that reading, um, Reading a graphic novel is a great way to prepare kids to read a more canonical novel, you know, those, those kinds of things. And what I'm coming to understand, perhaps too slowly, but what I'm coming to understand is, no, that, that's, a, that's a mistake to think about things that way. That participating in, in, in digital literacies is crucially important and, has, and is distinct and, and requires a certain set of distinct strategies and understandings that are that are different and equally valuable to the ones that are more traditionally prized by schools. I guess what I'm saying is that once we recognize that those things are important, then maybe we have to teach them with the same sort of attention and the same sort of goal that is that we want kids to be able to be respectful, knowledgeable, and effective digital consumers and you know, literate people. So what would you like to have educators take away from your work and apply in classrooms? That's a big question. So one of the things that I would want them to do is to think deeply about what's required by the tasks that we want kids to do. So, you know, to think hard about the, the attitudes and knowledge and strategies that are required for particular tasks. And then to try to develop those attitudes and teach those skills and strategies and help kids and foster the development of that knowledge by giving kids extended practice in gaining and applying those things in contexts that are relevant in the here and now. So one of the things that Jeff and I talk about a lot is to embed literacy instruction in service of thinking about essential or existential questions. For example, one project I'm working on, the 11th graders that we're working with, the first question we ask is, what does it really mean to be smart? Um, the second question we ask is, to what extent am I responsible for other people? I mean, those are questions that 
they're grappling with as a matter of course in their daily lives. Now, if we can figure out ways to embed instruction in reading and writing in those contexts, it's engaging in the here and now and also useful for the future, if you see what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And, and I know you talk a lot about that relevance piece. Students are much more likely to be engaged if they can see the relevance. Yes. Yes, I think that that's right. And, and relevance, uh, um, one of the things that we think about is the notion of interest. And there, there's this thing about individual interests. You know, I'm, I'm a sports fan. So I'm especially a big professional basketball fan. So I'm going to be interested in things in reading and writing that relates to professional basketball. There's also this thing you might think about as situational interest. And that's what are the features of a context that fosters the development of interest. So, for example, one of the things that we learned in reading the Fixed Chevys is that, as one of the kids put it, it's always better with friends, always. So we have to create a social context for them where they can see a payoff in a social sense of the skills and strategies and knowledge that we're asking them to learn. We know, for example, that we want kids to feel confident that kids embrace the stuff that they feel competent in. So too often instruction is designed to identify where kids go wrong and then try to fix it after the fact. So the instruction that Jeff and I talk about is trying to prepare kids to be successful rather than remediating after they fail, if you see what I'm saying. So what we want to do is create contexts that foster interest and engagement so that kids see the value of what we're trying to teach them so that they are willing to learn it. And then as we've argued, make it more likely that they're going to apply it in subsequent contexts. And is it more challenging to engage boys in literacy tasks that are more social? We didn't compare it in that study, boys to girls, but looking at the boys, boys were deeply invested in literacy, but they tended not to be immediately invested in, the, in reading the kinds of novels, for example, that schools tend to sanction. But they were all really engaged in reading in reading online and reading graphic novels and reading comic books and reading magazines. And they would share those with their, with their friends. So I, I think that there is a social element to that. And part of it also has to do with talk. There's a you know, really important power of talk. One of the points that we make or the constructs that we, de- that we develop in reading you know, fixed the Chevys has to do with what we call exportability. That is that the boys gravitated towards texts that you could easily bring into conversation. So I think that you can create situations where the boys, and I think it's valuable to all kids, it's not a zero-sum game, where the stuff that you read, the stuff that you ask them to write, has an immediate conversational payoff, and, and that's important. Well, you're now a professor at Temple University in the College of Education. How do you prepare your pre-service or graduate students to think about and develop curriculum that incorporates what you've identified as best practices for improving literacy, especially at the secondary level? Well, one of the things we know in teacher education is that kids tend to teach the way that they were taught. And one of the things we know is that the people who want to be teachers oftentimes are the one for whom that way of teaching worked, right? Although a substantial number of, of students come to us because they want to be better than, you know, they want to do a better job with kids like them than, than they felt that happened in their schools. So one of the things that, we try, that I try to do is to teach the kinds of lessons that I'm talking about and engage kids in them. And then we, then we reflect on what they just experienced and how they can produce it themselves. A uh, huge part of it is trying things in their own, in the field experiences that are associated with 
the field experience. So, for example, one of the things that when I was talking about this, this trying to create a conversation-rich environment, one of the things that I encourage students to do is if they're going to do a unit around a critical issue, like I mentioned, what does it really mean to be smart? Well, we start that unit by having kids look at five scenarios where people are smart in different ways. That's somebody who's school smart, but not street smart. You know, somebody who's smart who demonstrates that by doesn't do well in school, but is really has a great facility with, with doing rhymes and raps. So, and we have them rank those things, and then they just they they talk together about, you know, who's who's really the smartest one here. So that's a kind of discussion prompt that's different from a question. But typically, when students think about what my students want to come, they think about the way that you lead discussion is you ask some questions. And I think this is an unusual circumstance that you and I are in now because most of our conversations are not driven by questions. Interviews are, but when you're talking to a friend, there might be some questions, but typically there's more of a give and take between you and your friend when you're talking about whatever you're talking about. So what I try to do is to model the kind of teaching that Jeff and I advocate and then have students reflect on their experience and then, and then in their field experiences, try to reproduce the experience that they had in class. In, inquiry is, uh, is part of it. One of the things that I think any teacher needs to do is to collect data from as many kids as possible every day to see how what they're doing is working. So the inquiry that teachers do is, were my kids engaged? Well, how can, what would be a measure of engagement in this lesson? And then you, you, cre you create situations where you collect, maybe it's an exit ticket, maybe it's, a, it's a tracking the conversations in, in small groups that you have, but you, you want to create the inquiry that you do as a teacher is around the practices that you're employing. You're always wanting to ask, did this work? How many kids did it work for? If it didn't work for these other kids, why didn't it work? And, th and then what can I do the next day to try to make it work better? And so one of the things that we try to do is there, there are some ways that you can do the kinds of things that I'm talking about in ways that are not, do not have to radically change the curriculum. You know, there, there are ways that you can do these sort of non-question-like prompts to foster discussion that don't require rethinking of the entire curriculum. The, one of the things that I have to recognize as a, as a teacher is my students don't have the same sort of authority in their schools, at least initially, that, that I do. And that's another reason, actually, to collect data, so that if you do something a little bit different and somebody asks why are you doing it, that you'd be able to show them. See, see, this is what they did. What do you think? Are you happy? If you look at these products my students produce, what do you think? And, and that's, a, that's a way that I tried to make change in, in my school when I was teaching high school is I tried to be public about the kind of work that my kids were doing so that my colleagues and supervisors would say, well, you know, what's going on in his class must be pretty good because look at what they did. We'll be right back. Podcast is sponsored by Reading Horizons, the creator of a data-driven literacy program for beginning readers, struggling readers, and English language learners of all ages. With data-informing software and teacher-led instruction, students receive targeted intervention that leads to rapid reading improvement. Visit readinghorizons.com trial for 14 days of free access to our software. Could you talk a little bit about the issue of struggling readers at the secondary level? Um, many high school educators are really just not sure, you know, how to help a ninth grader who reads at a second or third grade level. Has 
your research or, you know, experience provided some insights about possible solutions for those scenarios? One of the things that I think what we want to do, two suggestions that I would have. Um, one has to do with this notion of practice, that the more opportunities that you can give kids to practice, the, the better they're going to get at things. Um, another is to, is to vary the kinds of texts that you use in your class. So one of the things that Jeff and I write about in a, in a relatively recent book called Diving Deep into Nonfiction is that you can use visual texts. Kids who are not readers can think deeply about important issues, and you can give them practice doing the thinking with easier kinds of text that then they're going to apply to the subsequent kinds of text. So you can do interpretive work in, 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 showing, a, in showing a painting or a photograph that's, that's pretty complicated, even if you are reading at a, at a lower level. And then the, uh, the third insight that I've gotten is that one of the things that I've come to understand is that people tend to read to deepen existing areas of expertise rather than getting new ones. If, if you see what I'm saying, I mean, I don't read. I'm a novice reader when it comes to reading medical texts. That I would be, I would be a struggling reader in that context. I'm a really good reader when it comes to reading things related to sports because that's, I've been doing that my whole life. If you, so one of the things I think that happens, especially for our struggling readers, the longer we spend in texts that share something, either share a conceptual orientation or are generically, you know, are of a similar genre, the more time we spend, the more apt they are to develop strategies to be able to understand those texts. It's way harder for students who are struggling readers and students who are English language learners to be participants in the classroom community than if you spend an extended amount of time working in a particular conceptual domain or working with a particular kind of text so that kids get increasingly, get kids better at that. Another thing I would say is that one of the things that, one of the reasons that Jeff and I like essential questions is that any text that you read in service of, of a mature essential question becomes mature. So let me give you an example. If we ask the question, I think this is, my family's multiracial, so this is a question that's close to my heart. Is it possible to understand people across demographic differences? Can we really understand people across differences in, in, in race, generation, gender, geography? So there are lots of books that we could read about that that are pretty complicated. But another kind of text that would take that up is having kids read children's books where the author was not the main character, uh, was not of the same demographic, from the same demographic group as one of the main characters. So then that children's book becomes an important text in the ongoing classroom conversation. And the kids who are are struggling to get the language or have difficulty with decoding, have access to that ongoing conversation. So that's one of the ways that you can differentiate. I think that, that essential questions as, a, as, a, as to structure the curriculum provide opportunities in ways that other kinds of organizations might not. And that kind of lends itself to this whole discussion about, you know, the value or the importance of motivation with older readers. You mentioned, you know, you've been reading about sports your whole life. It's something you're very interested in. But if you were asked to read something that was not of interest to you or, or with which you'd had little experience, that would be a different kind of task. So 
Is it important then, at least initially with students who, especially who may be reading at below grade level or whatever, that they have choice, that they're allowed to read things that they have already some competence or interest in, as opposed to this is our reading list for the year. This is what we're going to be doing next. I think the answer is that choice is important. And I think that you, that teachers should look to ways that you can bring, that you can provide students opportunities for, for choice. I think there are a variety of ways that you can, that you can do that. So if I'm thinking about a question, um, to what extent do, you know, to, to whom or what do I owe my primary allegiance? And I could ask students to find a song that addressed that question in some meaningful way. And that's providing, so I chosen the topic or the class has chosen the topic, but kids can choose text to bring in the classroom, to bring into the classroom conversation. Um, I think the idea of find something that speaks to you about this question is, is a great, is, is a great assignment. Um, I, I would say. So not necessarily that the material would, on the face of it, be that motivating to students. They may not even really know what that is. But by having the right questions and framing it and priming it, that students may be motivated because it's something that connects to them and then it bridges to text. Yeah, I guess I would, I would, I guess I would say, you know, if, if we say, what does it really mean to be smart? Think about something that you've read about or watched or that, that takes up that issue and bring it into class. It's not f- absolutely free choice, but it's, it's a certain kind of choice, if you, if you see what I'm saying. And, and so that they're at least motivated by thinking about whatever you're, you're, propo- you know, you're proposing to think about. Yeah, and, and I do th- but I do think that, I do think that to, to the extent that you uh, can provide additional choices or free choices for kids. I think that that's, that that's great. One of the things we found in reading fix of Chevy's is that students had so little choice that they embraced whatever they, they got, even so far as they talked about where teachers would, in giving a writing assignment, and the teacher said, you can write whatever you want as long as you support your argument. If the teacher really believed that, and the kids really believed that the teacher really believed that, that they regarded that as a choice. And one of the things, that, another thing that we like about these um, existential questions, essential questions, is that the question to what do I owe my primary allegiance is a question that the culture has been debating, you know, is it, my, is it myself, is it my family, is it my community, is it my nation, is it my religion? They're, they're, we've been talking about that for millennia, right? If that's the organization of your classroom, the kids are going to know that there's not just right an- one right answer to the question. And if that's what you're talking about in your classroom, if that's the surround in your classroom, your kids are going to know that their position has a chance to be equally as important as the teachers, right? So that it's not a function of experience or a function of age necessarily. It's a, it, it, there's something more involved than that. And so, so th- those are ways. So I think that there are a variety of ways that you can provide choice. Um, I'm really interested in John Guthrie's idea of micro choices too. And he's a, he's a motivational researcher. The way I, I'm understanding that term is that even in a restrictive curriculum, that there are opportunities for to give kids choice about assignments, about supplementary readings, about pacing, about assessment, and so on. And we should look for those opportunities as well. 
Well, this work is so valuable and I think of such great importance to educators who are doing this work. So thank you for providing your perspective. This has been really great. I appreciate your willingness to talk to me about it. Our next guest is a high school educator who is currently putting this research into practice. Christopher Butts, thank you for lending the educator perspective to this episode of PodClast. Thank you. So could you talk a little bit about your current role, um, specifically what you're doing in terms of adolescent literacy? My current role and job title is a Title I coach at uh, Alternative High School in the Boise School District, Frank Church High School. The district is using co-teaching model. So I'm teamed up with other teachers throughout the building and I have a lot of control over my schedule so I can quarter by quarter, I kind of revise it and, and team up with different teachers based on the needs of our students. So right now I'm teamed up with a, a ninth and 10th grade combination reading intervention class, uh, reading in English, I guess, and a similar situation with 11th and 12th graders in English. And then I'm in a, a geometry class for my third class of the day because we're on a block schedule with the same four 90-minute classes every day. Wow. So lots of different things. Yes. So we heard already from Dr. Wilhelm and Dr. Smith about their research and what they found in terms of adolescent literacy, particularly with boys. So you're kind of the boots on the ground. What what have you seen that they do enjoy? What do they want to read? That's really hard to answer because they is this huge population, very diverse group of students that I work with. So I don't think there's an easy answer to that. It it completely depends on the students. And and so that in turn, your part as an educator is to really get to know your students and their interests. So there's a lot of unpacking on our end and, and trying and probing and asking them, okay, what was the last book you finished? And um, I really, I try to find other inroads like music or movies that they're into. So I kind of get a feel for them. Like, oh, you like horror movies and suspense. Let's get you something that, that reads like that. And then maybe you'll want to access it. I'm also a diehard comic book nerd and have been since I was a kid. So, you know, I'm always kind of trying to stay up to date with what that, what students are reading in that genre and, and trying to incorporate that where it, it suits some students, because for some it's, it's the right threshold or, or access point. But I, I guess if I had to make a generalization, it would just be I mean, it's just a really good book. It's something that's a page turner. Uh, this last quarter that we started, we did a lot of explicit instruction with our students about how to book browse because that's not something that's typically explicitly taught in schools. And it's something that, in at least in my students' cases, isn't taught at home. And so we're, we're trolling Amazon and looking at, hey, what has the best reviews? And what are the best sellers out there? And especially now with the huge focus on YA out there, it's um, it's a lot easier, I think, now than maybe it would have been when I first started teaching in, in 2003 to find some of these books. Um, I, I, another thing, too, I think is things, you know, where the protagonist, it, when the book is more of a mirror for some of my students, I think that helps a lot where they can see or identify with some of the main characters. I'm also a huge fan of Kwame Alexander and a lot of his work and other books um, that are set uh, in verse where it's poetry. I'm actually reading Poet X right now by Elizabeth Acevedo, which is set with the female protagonist. And that's, that's another go-to for me for students that might be reluctant readers because it's a book, but it's with the poetry format, they can progress through the story much more quickly than they would otherwise. Uh, Dear Martin was another big read 
we had this here that was really popular with students uh, last year. Uh, the Hate You Give and Expelled were really popular reads with students. So it's just always changing. And it's, it's really important for us as educators to stay up to date with what's out there. So usually there's something in my my feed, a, a, an audio book or something like that, that I'm trying to, to listen to or read at the same time so I can stay up to date. Could you speak to a, a little bit to one of the things that they both mentioned, which is kind of this whole notion of exportable text? So things that uh, students can do socially, um, they mentioned that as something that was important, something they could talk about and share with other people. Do you see that as well? So this year is one of the first times I've really focused on that in my instruction. And I've done that a couple of different ways. The first way I did that is with different types of articles, but kind of around the same idea. We started off the quarter reading about the research behind pleasure reading and the British cohort study that, that Dr. Wilhelm and Dr. Smith love to cite in their reading. And, and for me has been kind of a bedrock belief that this is worth my time and energy because people that pleasure read are more likely to succeed in life, regardless of socioeconomic, whatever. So I explicitly taught students this year, nine through 12, that that reading pleasure will help you succeed. And then from there, we've actually broken down the different types of pleasure that, that they, Dr. Wilhelm actually shared in a recent article, The Benefits of Reading for Pleasure. And, and one of them is social pleasure. So I've been asking students, what pleasure are you feeling and why and how do you know that? And to leverage the, so we've, we've kind of named those pleasures for starters, and one of them is that social part. And then the other is creating times and spaces for students to interact about their books. Um, I know book talks are a really popular means of sharing about books, and that's something I'm completely on board with, but it can be kind of daunting, at least with some of my students, because they haven't finished the book yet, or they're just getting started with it, and they're not maybe comfortable sharing about it. So I've been facilitating what I call a book chat lately, where we kind of alternate with teen students doing a quick reflection and, and connection of what they've been reading for, for their kind of designated silent reading time each day. And then I alternate that with a chat where they're partnered up with somebody else and they just do a quick talk with them about the book and where they're at. And, and it's, it's something to work in progress. But right now I'm just having them partnered with the same person, like a book club, basically. And the, where you just kind of catch up with somebody, you're like, hey, this is where I'm at. This is what happens last time we talked. This is what I'm liking. This is, this is what I'm not liking. And it's been really fun to listen to those conversations and hear where they go because students ask each other probing questions and make connections and, and, and kind of throw out some really interesting ideas to each other. So that's, that's been a really cool thing to kind of experiment and explore further this year. Could you talk a little bit then kind of to piggyback on that about inquiry? So, you know, essential questions and how things are framed or primed with students so that there is more engagement and motivation going in. That's been kind of challenging with this approach that we've been going where we've been, we've been doing a lot of self-selected reading in my building and in the classes I'm in to get kids to see themselves as readers. So like this quarter, we're using an essential question, what's worth caring about and what should we do about it? And so, you know, the reading is, we're doing a lot of kind of just general reading. And so we're trying to use that to get kids an idea of what they should care about. And so in the first place, so that's, that essential question provides the rationale for, for doing a lot of general reading in the first place. And then from there, we can kind of pivot towards a culminating project where they articulate, you know, about a, a topic or something like that and what they want to do about it. In my junior, senior class, we're trying to get students to identify the central kind of issues or themes like racism or 
classism or whatever in their text, and then pairing that with self-selected nonfiction that is under that same umbrella. And then from there, what we'd like to do is say, okay, now, what do we, what can we learn about the world and what to do about it from all these books and articles that we're reading? So what recommendations based on your experiences and, and the journey that you're currently on with your students, would you provide to other educators of secondary students about what you think and what you're seeing in terms of engaging and supporting older students in literacy? I mean, just this is where I'm going to give myself, I guess, permission to get in a soapbox because that's kind of what your question is asking me to do. And that, and that is is to just really adopt that principle that of the validity and the importance of students leaving school, seeing themselves as readers and writers, enjoying the process of reading and turning to reading and writing as tools to help them solve problems in their life. Because I think once that is in your mindset, that can lead to some other changes in terms of your practice um, and maybe changing some things up. And something else I, I feel like I have to throw in here that I didn't get to before is is maybe re-examining your definition of literacy and what text is, because as we can all see, it's rapidly changing from what it was when any educator was their student's age when you look around. And so that's been a big thing that I've been critically analyzing when, you know, I look at my, ask my students where they access the news, it's all online. And so I've been grappling with how to facilitate those spaces for them to access news where they already do, and then teach them the strategies that I'm, you know, obligated to teach them in terms of how to read them critically and share about them. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective. That's been great. No problem. My pleasure. We really appreciate our listeners. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to explore educational topics and solutions. I invite you to join us on our next episode as we discuss educational technology. Are so many gadgets good for students and are teachers getting the training and support they need to effectively implement these expensive resources? Thank you for joining us for today's episode of PodClass. To be notified when future episodes are available, subscribe to PodClass on iTunes. If you enjoyed today's episode, leave us a review. To submit discussion topics, or to recommend a student, parent, educator, or expert to be interviewed on future episodes, visit readinghorizons.com slash podcast. Podcast is sponsored by Reading Horizons. Visit readinghorizons.com slash demo to see if Reading Horizons is right for your school. Reading Horizons. Reading is for everyone.